we have been talking uh, about a series called I Love to Tell the Story. And we're talking about ways that we can share Christ with others. And specifically, we're going over a little few basics. But in those basics, as I am teaching, I'm giving you some techniques, some thoughts, some areas of scripture, some things to think about. And um, today, we're going to be talking about God's riches at Christ's expense. Um, Several years ago, C.S. Lewis uh, Oxford, England, he, he taught there for a number of years. Uh, th- there was um, a worldwide religious conference that was happening in Britain, and uh, Lewis was going to attend that. One of the offshoot sessions, uh, there was um, uh, a debate that got started. The debate was asking the question, what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. And this debate got going in this room. Somebody brought up incarnation. And they went, no, that's not unique. There are, there are other religions that talk about somebody returning from the dead. Or was it resurrection? Well, no, because there are other religions that had Uh, that built into their religion. In fact, you may remember some of the ancient Greeks where somebody had gone to Hades and came back. This debate went on for quite some time, and Lewis was not in there, but he was walking down the hall, and he heard this debate going on. So he he walked into the room, and he was looking around, and he, he said, well, what's all this commotion about? And one of the people that was, you know, next to the door said, well, they're trying to figure out what, if any, belief in Christianity is unique from any other religion. And Lewis quickly said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Christianity is the only religion that is a grace-based religion. When you go to share Jesus Christ with somebody, you have to remember grace. Do you know why this is important? Would you like a couple of easy ideas about how to explain grace to somebody? If you would, just listen. I'm going to give you a couple. There was another time where an atheist was in a debate with a minister, and they were going back and forth and back and forth, and there was one point where the atheist got up and went to the podium, and he said, if there really is a God, may he prove it by striking me dead. Ha! There is no God. He went and sat down. And the minister got up and he went to the podium and he said, you have only proved that he is a gracious God. Grace, we 
know this definition, right? Unmerited favor. In fact, it's almost a church word, unmerited. We know what that means. But that may not mean somebody who doesn't, has never really heard that. A little bit longer, but a clearer definition is this. Grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. Philip Yancey, a few years ago, wrote a book called, What's So Amazing About Grace? And in there, there's this one line that caught my attention. Yancey writes, The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. And you think about that. No strings attached. We don't have to earn it. Well, you see, the Buddhists have an eight-fold path of enlightenment, yes? And you're on this wheel until you get there, and you go around and you go around. The Hindu have the doctrine of karma. You know that one, don't you? What comes around, what goes around, comes around, right? Judaism, you have the rigid keeping of the Mosaic law. And Islam has the absolute code of law. And each one of those, each one of those offers a way to try to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Back in 2001, Reader's Digest published an interview with Muhammad Ali. And in that interview, Muhammad Ali was asked what faith meant to him. And, and this was his reply. Muhammad Ali said, it means a ticket to heaven. One day we're all going to die and God's going to judge us, our good deeds and bad deeds. If the bad outweighs the good, you go to hell. But if the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. Do you know anybody who thinks like that? Have, have you ever been one who... Who thought like that? I used to think that way, um, especially as a child growing up, because, because it made sense to me. And many adults still believe that way. There's just one problem with it. It's not biblical. James, second chapter, writes... For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. If you have never committed adultery, you have never murdered, you have never worshipped an idol, made a graven image, never stolen anything, never taken the Lord's name in vain, but you have lied, or been jealous because of things somebody else has that you don't have. Or you have said things about others that you knew was not true. Idle talk. Slander. Gossip. That one 
act outweighs any good deeds you may have ever done all put together. Uh, For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles on just one point is guilty of all of it. You see, to think like Ali means that no one will ever make it to heaven. Because the law requires God to deal with us as we deserve. Contrary to what Muhammad Ali thought, and I learned as a kid, our good deeds will never earn us a place in heaven. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, You are saved by God's grace because of your faith. By the way, this is the um, uh, Common English Bible. This may not be the one that you learn, but this gets the force of the language. Oh, by the way, there is one other way you can translate just that one sentence. That one sentence can be translated as you are saved by God's grace because he is faithful. It's just interesting to to think about that translation because he is faithful. You are saved by God's grace because of your faith through faith. This salvation is God's gift. It is not something you possessed. It's not something that you you did that you can be proud of. Instead, we are God's accomplishment, created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be the way we live our lives. I may have mentioned before, Paul rarely mentions grace without mentioning responsibility. He rarely mentions God's half of the covenant without mentioning our half of the covenant. But Paul gives a very clear statement here. On God's side, it's 100% grace. Our side is 100% submission to his will. That's the covenant. And yet, my friends, do you want something to think about today, to rejoice about? God is gracious because he chooses to be gracious. That's what's in his nature. No one can ever be saved apart from God's grace that was expressed through that covenantal sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But he did that. God made flesh, God himself making covenant with his own blood because he chooses to be gracious. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, in both of those, we read about God's moral law, right? The law of Moses, and it does have its place. Paul in Romans 3 says this, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight, in his sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The whole point of the law is to tell us we messed up. 
There is no forgiveness under law. Now, that's a concept we understand, right? You uh, don't do the crime if you what? If you can't do the time. That's drilled, in, that's drilled into at least some of us. I know it was drilled into y'all who are looking at me and y'all think I'm a young man. But we understand that naturally, right? You break the law, you suffer the consequences. The point of law is not to redeem. In fact, the point of God's law expressed in Exodus and Deuteronomy was to show us our need for redemption. Peter writes, 1 Peter 3, Christ suffered once for all. A beautiful phrase. One sacrifice, one time for all sin, for all humanity. It's been done. You get the benefit when you come into covenant with him. Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body that we may be, we may be made, excuse me. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. And we don't have to, we don't have to complicate it. No, Jesus died in my place. I deserve death. I broke the law. That's the penalty. But he died for me. He paid the price by standing in my place. Paul writes in Romans 4, Jesus was given to die for us with God, which is to say, The cross means Jesus made me right with God. Let me ask you a question. Who balances the checkbook in your house? I can tell you who balances the checkbook in my house. In fact, I bet you can tell me who balances. You know me well enough. Who do you think balances our checkbook? The joy of my life. When you're looking at your checkbook and you're trying to balance it, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're looking at the money in your account and then you're looking at the record of what you got and what you spent that you have written down and what you're trying to do is figure out how to make those two equal. Uh, math teacher Carl, what do we call that process where we're trying to make the balance equal what the checkbook says? What do we call that? Solving an equation, it's, it's reconciling those two, right? Yeah, solving it, it's reconciling. You see, the word reconciliation, the way we think about it, is a business word. It's bringing two things together. It's making peace by bringing those two things in alignment with each other. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. 
See, Jesus is making peace between God and us. Everett Worthington, um, Virginia Commonwealth University, we did a uh, study last year uh, in Sunday school uh, on forgiveness and reconciliation. We used Everett Worthington's uh, book on that as the basis for that. The way he defines reconciliation is a very, very good way to think about it. It is restoring trust in a relationship where trust has been damaged. Does that make sense? Restoring trust in a relationship that has been damaged. Dr. John Paul Lederick wrote this. You cannot build a bridge by starting in the middle. Bridge builders have to begin from the side that they are on. You see, sin separates us from God. There was a time when we were together, but men, uh, but sin created this huge chasm. We can do all kinds of things. We can, we can sing songs of praise. We can read his word. We can try to do good things for other people. We can repent from, from not and, and change our whole idea of what we're doing and how we're doing it and where we're going. And we can pile up all of these good things. But that chasm is so great that there's nothing that we can do to bridge it. It can only be bridged from God's side. Sin separates us from God. Jesus is the bridge by which we get back to God. He spans that gap between mankind and God. And Jesus' covenantal sacrifice on the cross has made peace with God possible. My cousin Jeff Weaver is... Jeff is a month younger than I. He just became an old man, which I hate to admit because that means I'm old. Uh, But Jeff and I used to, he's the closest thing I have to a brother. I have two sisters, but Jeff uh, moved from Virginia when he was about seven or eight and was in the same town for a couple of years and then a few miles south of us. And we would get together and do all kinds of things. Well, they moved into a brand new house, very small, modest house, but in a neighborhood that was being built. And as it was being built, there were different lots around that had different levels of construction going on. And way back when, in the dark ages, I was just talking this morning, I remember black and white TV, um, the, uh, the builders used to leave these things all over the construction site. Jeff would ride his bike, I would ride his sister Beverly's bike, and we would go around to the construction sites and pick up these bottles and put them in the basket that were on the bikes. Then we would ride the bikes a good half to three quarters of a mile. Yeah, that, kids, that was in a day when people used to do that, ride bikes along the street as kids. 
And we would take it down to the local mini mart. You know what we were getting ready to do? We're getting ready to turn those bottles in because each one of them was worth five cents worth of bubblegum money. So, we're going to redeem those bottles. But you know what? We did not redeem those bottles. Who redeemed those bottles? The store owner redeemed those bottles. Why? Because he bought them back. And when he bought those bottles back, they belonged to him. In Greek, that word redemption, it's, it's not so much a business word as it is a slavery word. It is the word that is used when a slave was bought by somebody in the marketplace. In a spiritual sense, all of us were slave till sin until Jesus purchased us back and set us free from sin's bondage. 1 Peter 1, we read this. For you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from the Father's not with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. Think about that. What's the significance of a lamb without defect or blemish in Christ? It is that sacrifice of covenant. Through the cross, Jesus bought and paid for us, and we are now exclusively his. I think sometimes we spend too much time in the Word. Because we complicate it. We use words like substitutionary atonement, justification, reconciliation, propitiation. I bet even today, if you knew what that was at some point, you'll pull up your phone and Google it. Propitiation. They're good words, but they, but they complicate the idea of grace. You see, God's grace simply is this Jesus took our sin punishment on himself his death on the cross makes us right with God restoring our relationship with God and now our lives belong to him because he paid for them Bedford, Virginia, 
there is a memorial, World War II memorial. The reason why it's in Bedford, Virginia was because on D-Day, on a per capita basis, the town of Bedford lost more men on D-Day than anywhere else in our whole country. D-Day 2014, I was there. 70 years after D-Day, there in the morning, there's a number of different things. In fact, I would suggest to you, I would encourage you, if you're ever in that area, to go and stop, to remember, to reflect, to pray. But this particular statue right here, this uh, rifle and helmet, was unveiled that day. That particular sculpture is called Final Tribute. A fairly significant movie of our time, just in the last 20 years, about World War II. I'm sure you probably saw it. Saving Private Ryan. Invasion of Normandy has happened. A group of army rangers are there. They receive word about a mission to go deep into enemy territory in order to save Private James Francis Ryan and send him back to America and take him out of the fight because he's the last of four brothers. The other three were all killed in the invasion at Omaha Beach. As this group of army rangers crosses the country of Germany, looking and seeking out and finding out where Ryan has been and maybe where he is, um, they hit skirmish after skirmish, and some of them were killed on the way. They finally reach where Private Ryan is helping to hold a key bridge in a burned-out town. Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, comes up to Ryan and says, in effect, he says, you need to come with us. We're here to save you. You need to come with us. And Ryan answers him and says, I'm not going. I have to stay here. I am not. I'm not going to abandon the only brothers that I have left. So Captain Miller and the rest of the rangers that were with him that made it there, they dig in with the squad that's there to protect that bridge. They all stay and fight, and almost every one of them dies, except Private Ryan. In the end, Captain John Miller is sitting on the ground, mortally wounded and dying. But the battle has been won. Private Ryan leans over close to him. And Tom Hanks whispers in his ear, he says, James, earn this. Earn it. 
It's gripping. It is powerful storytelling. But it's unlikely. You know why? The army rangers date back into into the War of Independence. Their motto for almost 200 years has been a Latin phrase, sua sponte, sua sponte. It is Latin for I chose this. I volunteered for this. So you see, if Tom Hanks' character was really a ranger, he would have said, I chose this. You don't have to earn it. I gave up my life for you. That's my job. Friend, when we look at the cross and we see Jesus hanging there, God's love says, I chose this. I gave up my life for you. You are redeemed. John Stott minister and author writes this the gospel is good news of mercy for the undeserving the symbol of religion of Jesus is the cross not the scales grace simple thing to remember I started off with an acronym some of you probably saw it some of you may not but it's right here Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. His side, 100% grace. Our side, 100% submission to his will. Father God, We thank you as we pause today, as we remember through communion, through your word, we remember your grace and we rejoice for that grace applied to our lives. And Father, I pray that if anyone here is seeking and needs that grace, that they will simply reach out to you and in the love that you express through Christ that they will be willing to accept that grace and accept your love and join your family. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.